Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 11. John's Gospel and chapter 11. This morning, we thought basically of three things. First, we thought about the home that Jesus loved. Here are um, ordinary, everyday folk, just like you and me. And here is a place where Jesus loves to be. Here is a little family, and the Lord knows them, and he loves them. He is intimately acquainted with them, intimately involved in all their lives. And then this tragedy strikes. The brother becomes ill, then critically, gravely ill, and then he dies. The home that Jesus loved. And it doesn't mean that when trouble and illness or bereavement comes into a home, that the love of the Lord has ceased. Of course not. And you know that. You know that. But then secondly, we thought about the time that Jesus waited. Here is this community of Jews and they have this superstition that at death the human spirit lingers for three days, hoping to be able to rejoin the body. But then after three days, by the fourth day, the spirit has gone so Lazarus now is obviously and hopelessly dead and can only be raised by the power and the action of God himself. And then we thought, thirdly, I'm thinking here, verse 4, the glory that Jesus revealed. These miracles that John has recorded for us, there are seven in all in his gospel, these miracles are actually signs. That's how he describes them. In the other Gospels they are dunamis, dynamite, power. But here they are signs. They are pointing to Jesus and telling us who he is. They're telling us that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord of life and of light, that he's been sent from his Father in heaven and that he is to be believed upon. And he is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed. Those are the three things that we thought about this morning. So then fourthly, moving on from this morning, let's think about the tears that Jesus shed. The tears that Jesus shed. Yes, he is upset. He is upset because his friend has died. And he is upset by the grief and the pain that this is causing Mary and Martha and the other close friends in that community. Of course he is upset, but there's more to it than that. Here is revulsion, and here is indignation in the presence of death. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord of life and light. And death is an intruder. Death is an imposter. Death is pretending to be all-powerful. It is claiming to have the final word. In heaven, all 
is light and life. And mankind, men and women, boys and girls like us here tonight, we are meant to have a part and a share in that. And death comes in, and death is unnatural. Death is wrong. It is in opposition to the one who is the Lord and the giver of life. These last couple of weeks, I've had to take two funerals, both burials. And uh, as we stood at the graveside, I took this passage. I was able to say to the family, a believer being buried, and to say to the family, we know that this is the wrong place to be. It's not right to be here, is it? Because death is wrong. But as believers, we have that sure and certain hope that the one who we are laying to rest in the earth, whose bodily remains are being put into the earth, that one still lives and is now even enjoying and knowing and thrilling in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Part of it, isn't it? And as all the, as the sights and the sounds of this world fade away, the believer is conscious that he or she is now hearing new, different sounds. Sounds not heard before. And that believer is, is just being swept in an unbroken flow into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. With him or her in life, with him or her through death, into the life everlasting that we've already begun because we've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a thrilling prospect that is for the believer. And here are the tears that Jesus has shed. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is surrounded by these mourners. And we know how they behave. All the wailing and the weeping and the flailing around of arms and the falling on the floor. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of this. They think, they think that death is in control. They think that death has won again, just as it always does. And here they are thinking that death is the master, the final victor in the battle of life. But it is not true, is it? And here are the tears that Jesus shed. He cries because they don't understand death nor do they understand who he is. The Lord is about to demonstrate his mastery and his superiority over death. He is about to demonstrate that where life and death is concerned, that he is the Lord, that he is the King. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. What he commands will and must happen. Now most of the people there, move on with me please into verse 37, most of the people there understand that the Lord has power. Verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. 
if he'd have been here. Because he's able to do that, surely could he not have been able to do this as well and to prevent this man from dying? They're sincere, aren't they? They're sincere. They're not mocking. This is not sarcasm. They're just looking at a perplexing situation because they don't know the infinite reach and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I made reference this morning, didn't I, to the, the nobleman, the man in chapter 4. And he finds the Lord Jesus Christ. He leaves his sick, his dying son. How desperate is that? And he leaves his dying son and he heads uphill all the way to find the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says what? Come to my boy and come now before he dies. He doesn't understand the power or the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you've got to come and be with the boy. You, you've got to be with him to do something with him and for him. It's no good being at a distance. He doesn't know that Jesus can work at a distance, as we thought this morning. And before he dies, once he's dead, that's it, it's gone. It's, it's just nothing can be done. The man doesn't understand the scope, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here then is the Lord in control of this whole situation. He knows what he is doing and he knows what the outcome will be. He will awaken Lazarus, verse 11. Lazarus, verse 23, will rise again. This will be for the glory of God and so that the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be glorified by means of it. And so a new heading for us. The prayer that Jesus prays. Verse 38 and following. The prayer that Jesus prays. He joins the crowds now at the tomb. This tomb is, is a cave. And uh, 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 as a door, it has a, a big block of stone, almost like a bung, a stopper. That's what it is. And suddenly... Everything goes quiet because the Lord has commanded that the stone be removed. Please just, we need to try and visualise these Gospels and see what's going on. This vast crowd wailing and weeping, thrashing around. Suddenly they've all gone quiet because this man has said, take the stone away. Everything has gone quiet. Martha speaks up, and you'll notice verse 39, she's the sister of the dead man. The word dead is repeated over and over. And she says what everyone is thinking. Lord, we can't do that. There's, a, there's going to be a terrible smell. It, it, it's, it's, it's going to be terrible. But Jesus commands that the stone be removed. He doesn't touch it. They must know that this is no trick, that it all happens by the power of his word alone. He stands back, he won't touch it. And the stone is heaved away in breathless silence. And El eyes are fixed upon that dark, gaping hole in the mountainside, the hillside. Your eyes would be, wouldn't they? peering into that blackness. And then suddenly all eyes are switched and are now 
upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All attention is upon him because he is praying. And here is the prayer that Jesus prays. He raises his eyes and looks up. That is the Jewish way of praying. And he addresses God as his Father. Isn't that wonderful? When the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he brought with him a description of God that's almost unknown and unheard of in the Old Testament. Father, Father. Your loving, heavenly Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is Son from all eternity. His Sonship is by right. Ours is by adoption. But isn't that wonderful? He reminds us that we belong to Him and to a loving, heavenly Father. Talking with a group of men the other night um, in a difficult situation and trying to explain to them how forgiveness works and how it's, it works because God is prepared to become a loving Heavenly Father. And I said to them, you know, some of us, we've had good dads and some of us have had bad fathers and some we don't even know who our dad is. But here is a loving Heavenly Father who is kind and gracious and longs to be a father to you. And here's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That in this miserable world, we have a loving heavenly father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And then he gives thanks. As he looks to heaven and prays to his father, he gives thanks. I thank you, Lord, Lord, Father, that you have heard me. Clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ has been praying about this situation already. He's been making it a matter of prayer. A man of prayer. And here we're reminded that the Father always hears him. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that you have sent me. Why did Jesus give thanks and why did he pray that his prayer had been heard and answered? It's because of the crowd. He's, he's not making a fuss of himself, but he's, it's so that the crowd will have an opportunity to believe that the Father has sent him. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the world and the Father has sent him to do these things that these things may be a sign and pointing to the Son so that we may know who he is. You see, this is not just a man with amazing powers. This is the Son of God. This is the man sent from heaven. This is the man sent from heaven by the Father. They are one, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. And Jesus is to be believed upon. He is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed. Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Here tonight, in this little hall, do you
do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you live tonight? Do you have that spiritual life that only he can give? Do you have it? It's there through believing, knowing who he is and trusting in him. Trusting in the one who is sent from heaven. Is it your destiny? Is it your privilege to live and never die? That's what Jesus is offering. That's what this whole passage is about. So here we are, outside this tomb. The stone has been thrown away and everybody is gazing at the Lord Jesus Christ. All the wailing and shouting has stopped. All eyes are now fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they're fixed once more, glued upon the entrance to the cave because Jesus now shouts. It's a loud voice and a passionate voice. It is Lazarus here outside. Lazarus here outside. And so we come now to the enemy that Jesus defeats. Here is the Lord's loud and simple command and it must, it will be obeyed. In the Old Testament, we read, don't we, of the wizards and the other people with those sort of things, mucking about with those sort of things. And we read that they mutter and they mumble and they have their secret incantations. This is clear. This is open. This is bold. Here is the authority of God. Here is the voice of God. Lazarus, here outside. You can imagine now, be there, the gasps of amazement from the crowd as the dead man, that's how the crowd are still thinking of him, the dead man comes out. Death has been defeated. Death has lost its sting. Now it's possible that because of the uh, strips of cloth, the linen that is wound uh, uh, around and about him as the grave clothing, it's possible that he just couldn't walk properly which would account for this final command where the Lord says, untie him, loose him and let him go. And again, the Lord will not touch him. The Lord stood back from him, isn't he? Everybody must know the reality of this. This is no trick. This is the death. This is the enemy that Jesus defeats. It is death itself. Let me take you to another place, a place of sudden stillness. It was that little boat that Jesus was in when he fell asleep. An ordinary man to uh, public view. And he falls asleep and the storm comes. And when he's woken from his sleep, he commands the storm, he commands the waves and they cease. The wind stops howling and the lake is flat calm. Okay, it, it, it doesn't settle down. It is just a flat calm. And the disciples, all crowding at one end of the boat, because Jesus is here, they're all at the other end. And they're all huddled together, not daring to go near him. They were frightened of the storm. They are now terrified of this man. 
And the question they ask, who is this man? Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a question we have to answer. Who is this man? Who is this man? Christ Jesus. He commands even the wind and the waves and they obey him. And here's this crowd stood around the now empty grave and they say, who is this man? He commands even the dead and they hear and obey. It has to be asked, doesn't it, that question, who is this man? It has to be answered by each one of us. So let me ask you, this is a rhetorical question, no shouting out. Who do you say Jesus is? What's your opinion of him? What's your answer to that simple question? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? For me, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent from heaven. He is to be believed upon and he is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed. And so, finally we come to the life that Jesus gives, the enemy that Jesus defeats, the life that Jesus gives. Please note, first of all, this life that Jesus gives is only by his word. No one else in the crowd, no one else in this world's history can speak to the dead man and command them back to life. Well, no, they can. We can. But nothing's going to happen. That's the difference. Only Jesus can speak to a dead man and bring him back to life. It's only by his spoken word. But then secondly, I want you to notice in terms of the life that Jesus gives, just how immediate and complete this all is. There's no need for Lazarus to have time to regain his strength. He's been ill, he's had a fever or some such and that has taken his life away. But now he's in the full vigour of his life. You know how it is when we recover from something, we take it easy, you're still a bit fragile. You're better but you're still fragile. But this man, unbind him, let him go. Only by his word. It's immediate and total and complete. But then third, the life that Jesus gives, it is temporary, isn't it? Though we find him hale and hearty in chapter 12, a man with a good appetite sat around the meal table with all his friends. He must die again. He must die again. This is a temporary arrangement. And so we need to understand the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus here in chapter 11 of John is the picture of a greater reality. We turn back to the first chapter of John and what do we read? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And John begins there deliberately. He deliberately starts in that way because he wants us to think way back to the very beginning of Genesis, in the beginning, God. And John is trying to stitch the two things together in our minds and in our emotions. In the beginning was the Word. And then John goes on to speak about the Word being there in the beginning with God and making and creating all things. Jesus is the agency of creation. 
Well, now here is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, once again. And he is the agency of recreation, of recreation. He can create spiritual life and light in dark, dead souls. Whether it's the man lying in the grave, or whether it's the man or woman, boy or girl, who walks this earth, he can create life and light in dead souls. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has the authority, the right to call men and women everywhere out of spiritual death. And so he calls us out of our dark spiritual death, the death of sin and unbelief, and into the newness of life that only the gospel can bring us. That's the life that Jesus gives. And the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ is that with this life, we'll find that it has a quality and a quantity it is a life of quality, fullness of life, abundant life, life everlasting. What kind of a life have you got now? What kind of a life have you got now? Keep it to yourself. But what kind of a life do you have? A life that will never die. The life that Jesus gives Let me take you back 50 years. Hoylake Beach. Hoylake Beach on the Wirral. And every year um, there, was a, there would be a beach mission. And the local church uh, would, would run that. And uh, in the evening services they would have the sand services. They would have uh, a little questionnaire, a little box. And they'd get some of the young people to stand up on the box and give testimony. Well, as far as I know, there were only a few who were actually converted. But they'd haul them up on the box nonetheless. And what's your favourite verse? And every one of them would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Weak, feeble. I knew them. They were my contemporaries. And I knew that was not true. It wasn't. And that the subsequent Years have proven it wasn't true. Do you have life? Do you? Do you have life in the Lord Jesus Christ? Move forward a little bit in time. Only 30 years ago now, down at Garston Market, Bill Bygroves and Uncle George and Uncle Colin. Wow, what a difference. Two elderly men stood together. Used to, it was worth it. It was worth taking. I used to go down. Um, Steve Bowers used to pick me up and drop me off. Used to drop off at the at Garston Market there. Uncle George and Uncle Colin. Wow, worth hearing. Life, vigor. Uncle George used to used to do this with his hands, defying anyone to to disbelieve. It was wonderful. What a difference. What a difference. Do you have life? Do you? Is it real? Is it real? The raising of Lazarus is a picture of another greater reality. 
it prefigures the raising of the whole world to stand in judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, let me just read the version that I've got uh, with me now. John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. The raising of Lazarus is the picture of another greater reality. It prefigures the raising of the whole world to stand in judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ. You found the passage now, John 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and to has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John chapter 11. Lazarus here outside. Some were called to the resurrection of life. We who believe are looking and longing with great anticipation to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when we will be given publicly and, and eternally our life. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, will do that to us who believe. We will stand before him and be ushered into our eternal destiny. But the rest... The rest are called to the resurrection of judgment and will be banished forever from his presence. Unbeliever here tonight, we fear for you. Will you not fear for yourself? Will you not? Let me close by asking and answering two questions. As the stone was taken away, what was that crowd about to see? Everyone there on that wonderful day, believer and unbeliever alike, were about to see a miracle. No one could deny it. All were agreed that a spectacular display of power took place. What did they see? But then what did the Lord promise? He promised Martha that she would see the glory of God. He'd spoken such a thing to the disciples, but then in verse 40... Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Some saw the miracle and were unchanged, were unmoved. Some of them were even angry, so enraged that they decided that the only course of action was to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but others saw the miracle and the glory of God. Either they were brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they believed on him there and then, or as men and women who already believed on Jesus, their faith was enlarged and strengthened and they glorified him. And then a third question. What about you? What about you? What do you see? It's a question I asked this morning, basically, isn't it? What do you see when we've read this passage and thought about it together as we have? What is this event for you? An interesting story? A dramatic event? Does it hold you spellbound? Or does this event go further than that? And does it reveal to you, to you, the glory of God? And does it cause you in your heart to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to elevate him to that position together? What is this sign telling you about the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it telling you that he is the Son of God who has been sent from heaven and that he is to be believed upon and loved and worshipped and obeyed. Is that what it's telling you tonight? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? is the question Jesus asks because this is the life that Jesus gives. Amen.